listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. We're your hosts, Jessica and Caroline, and we're super excited for today's interview. But before we dive in, we just want to let you know about a few things that will be changing on the podcast over the next several weeks. We've decided to move from seasoned episodes to numbered. For our work, it just makes most sense. So don't be alarmed if you go to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast and you notice they're now numbered. It'll be fun to see how many great podcasts we've been able to record. We'll be updating all of our old episodes, so you'll see that happen over the next several weeks. Yes, and stay tuned over the next few weeks as we have lots of fun things planned for the podcast, including educator spotlights, weekly tips, and much to Tom's chagrin, maybe even a weekly joke or two. You could even send in your favorites. Yes, but they must be bad dad jokes. Okay, now back to business. Uh, Today, we're excited to bring you an interview Tom recently did with John Couch. For 16 years, John served as Apple's vice president of education. He launched some great programs and saw a lot of cool stuff, but left a bit disappointed by the reductive and ineffective uses of technology. In John's new book, he urges a full rewiring of education. In his conversation with Tom, he explained what makes him enthusiastic about project-based learning and the future of learning technology. Let's listen in. John Couch, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Ah, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. John, you were studying computer science in the 1960s. How did you get interested in computers? Oh, it's a, actually, it's a strange story because I was a uh, physics major at the University of California at Riverside. And uh, I walked into my final exam in my junior year, and there was one problem on the exam, and that was to describe the motion of a spinning top in free space which had never been covered in the lecture, nor was it covered in the book. And I saw a lot of smart people panic because we hadn't memorized the formula. At that same semester, I took a course called Horticultural Science 120, which actually was Fortran programming because it was the only department that could afford the IBM computer in those days. And obviously the pedagogy between trying to memorize the physics problems and the challenge of coding uh, were, you know, dichotomies. They were opposites. And I was fascinated by coding because there was no right or wrong answer that you really had to visualize uh, your data structures, the relationships with the data structures. Uh, there was no right or wrong answer. And it, it was it was a challenge. And um, after having memorized my way through high school and, th- and almost three years of college, I realized that that, that was the end of memorization and I better learn how to think outside the box and how to, you know, fundamentally how to think. And so when I looked around the United States for a computer science department, not a minor in electrical engineering or math, uh, UC Berkeley was the only school that I found. So I transferred to UC Berkeley and received my undergraduate degree in in letters in science and in computer science in 1969 which I saw the other day, only 54 graduates in that year in computer science. And John, both uh, both of us uh, learned Fortran. And and when we're talking about coding, we're talking about punch cards, right? We both carried big (laughs) boxes of punch cards around campus, right? Yeah, I think think you could probably see how bad of a programmer I was because my first project, the Gregorian calendar, was 2000 cards and I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure I could program it today in in fewer cards. And you hoped it didn't rain. 
Congratulations on your new uh, your new book. It's called Rewiring Education: How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. Is this your first book, John? I actually wrote a book called Compiler Construction Theory and Practice um, while I was working at Hewlett Packard. Yes, that's uh, I did see a reference to that. What 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 was the impetus for this uh, for this book? Well, I think. Uh, Really, it, it stems from the number of years that I was uh, not only in school, but teaching at UC Berkeley and at Cal State. And the, the 10 years that I re- I actually retired at my ripe old age of 36 and spent 10 years rebuilding a school in North County, San Diego, and then 16 years of traveling around the world as Apple's vice president of education. So it was accumulation of everything that I had learned. And uh, my goal was to start a conversation uh, that uh, the pedagogy that still dominates our classroom, that, it, that, one, that one being memorization, um, is just not going to work. And uh, Apple developed with educators and other experts the challenge-based learning framework, which was based around the classroom needs to be relevant. It needs to be creative. In other words, students are... Are not just should not just consume the content, but they should have the ability to create the content. It needs to be collaborative. In other words, Pogorsky's work that says we learn from each other. When I went to school, collaboration was called cheating because every project I had was a single person project. And finally, it needs to be challenging. So you know, it's a call. It's a call to action for parents and teachers to realize that the technology that's now in place empowers both the teacher and the student if deployed correctly. John, ex- explain the title, uh, Rewiring Education. It's the it's the n- title of the second chapter, but w- why the rewiring metaphor? Well, you know, it, it seemed that, that most of the people either thought we should, you know, dump everything, you know, replace the whole school system, or patch it like a piece of software. Uh, we'll patch it with classes of 20 students or less. We'll patch it with throwing more money at it. We'll patch it. We'll patch it. And we wanted something sort of in between that says, um, um, rather than throw it out and rather than try to do these minor patches, let's sit back and rewire it, uh, given the technology today and where the technology is going tomorrow. And it's kind of an ongoing rewiring. Uh, you're, you're not going to just rewire it once. You're going to rewire it as, as things change. Uh, chapter two is on design. I, I was happy to see that. Um, why, why is design an important concept? Well, I think, again, it gets back to that, that pedagogy. Uh, you know, it's not memorization. Um, it's sitting back, solving problems. And it's just, it just, it's important. So the, so in other words, the process to design something is the same process as to solve a problem. It's the same process as probably starting a company. It's the same process as coding. It's the same process as challenge-based learning. So again, we're trying to get people to think a little bit differently. Right. You know, rather than, you know, the memorization of facts, you know, pulling back and thinking outside the box and and using the process, the creative process that comes out of the design world. Right. I, I do appreciate how um, 
at the end of chapter two, you really call the equity question. You say we must start by asking ourselves if we truly believe that if every child has the potential to learn and succeed. So it's really purposeful design, uh, both of the system and and incorporated into the system. Yeah, I mean, it, that just came from the fact that when I took the 10 years at Santa Fe Christian in San Diego, when I taught at Cal State San Jose, when I taught at Berkeley, I never met a student who wasn't uniquely gifted in some way. They may not, you know, uh, they may not march to the tune that our educational system uh, requires, but every student I ever met, you know, I like to say there was a little bit of genius in each one of them. And I really felt that my responsibility as a teacher was not to distribute, you know, readily available facts, but first and foremost, it was to help the student recognize the gifts that they have and where their passion was. Uh, my daughter, who, who kind of struggled in high school, was in her sophomore year at San Diego State in psychology when she took her first art course. And her sorority sister said to her, you know, what are you doing in psychology? You have this natural gift for art. So she put together a portfolio and transferred to Parsons. And she said, you know, Dad, for 14 years, I pushed the educational ball up the hill until I discovered where my talents were and what I was excited about. And I can now chase the learning ball down the hill. And I think we make a distinction in the book from Joe Ito that says education is what people do to you. Learning is what you do for yourself. You have a great chart on uh, in chapter five, page 63, that illustrates the difference between education and learning. It starts with the overall paradigm of education is really delivery. The paradigm of learning is discovery. Yeah, it was one of the few charts that the publisher allowed us to put in the book. Um, so the other charts and slides for my presentations are actually on the website, rewiringeducation.com. But I think that the other key element in there is the motivation. Learning comes from intrinsic motivation, not from extrinsic. Uh, the process is personalized rather than standardized infrastructure is really student focused as opposed to administrative focus content is is open rather than fixed the environment is more real than simulated the context is the world not the classroom that's a great list yeah and and one of the things uh, i i developed a slide we we used to call it the green blue slide because it laid out the characteristics of the it infrastructure for business which tend to focus on on revenue, so the total cost of ownership was the key parameter. Whereas in education, it it really focus, should focus on discovery, and the, the parameter should be total cost of opportunity. And I don't see that too often in the in the infrastructure, the IT infrastructures in our schools. Right, John. You, I think you you were probably the first one to use this term challenge based learning. Why don't you describe that? And this is the subject of Chapter 7. What is it and why do you think it's important? Yeah, it was. It really uh, came out of ACOT, too. Uh, if you remember, ACOT was Apple's Classroom Tomorrow, which was a 12-year longitudinal study around the Apple II. 
And we actually gave Apple IIs to the students both at school and at home. And the results of that, of that research simply came back and said, if the student is engaged, they're going to learn. And engagement can come from technology, but can also come from a great teacher. Uh, ACOT II was Apple's Classroom Tomorrow Today, which we started when I came back in, in the early 2000s. And the pedagogy that came out of that study, realizing that technology had developed and, and uh, technology had gone personal, uh, such that each student could have their own computer uh, 24-7 was that the classroom, an engaged classroom, is going to be one that's relevant. In other words, not simulated, but real, real to the students. One that was creative, again, that the students now have the tools to create content in, the, in context rather than simply being the recipients of, of, of the distribution of facts. Uh, three, that the, a really learning environment uh, needs to contain collaboration because students learn from each other from Vygorsky's work on the zone of proximal development. And finally, it needs to be challenging. So the students, in order to stay engaged, need to find the problem challenging. And uh, I think I use an example in the book. There are many, uh, obviously, all around the world. But the one I chose to use in the book was uh, California's fourth grade uh, history of California. And if you think about it, the minimal amount of California history goes into our book simply because the publisher will just put the you know least common denominator in to get the book accepted. The majority of teachers have a project for the students to build a mission, usually out of sugar cubes. I like to say if it comes in in anything other than sugar cubes, the parents built it. Unless it was in Minecraft, then you know the students built it. Um, in a challenge-based learning example of, of fourth grade California history would be, you are William Randolph Hearst. And the students would say, well, who's William Randolph Hearst? You say, you need to go discover that. So in that discovery, as a team, they would find that William Randolph Hearst was the owner and editor of the San Francisco Examiner, that he built Hearst Castle. Uh, by building, by bringing in uh, workers and artifacts and animals from all over the world. So all of a sudden, you're now getting out of California. And uh, that he entertained the Hollywood elite on the weekends at a very long table. Um, and so your challenge would be, you're going to throw a dinner party for those individuals that made the biggest impact in California history. Who would you invite and what would the seating chart look like? And in the process of discovery, you're going to find, you're going to learn as much about the presidios as, as the missions. You're going to learn that the first governor of California's main goal was to annihilate the Indians. So we're probably not going to invite him to dinner. But it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a paradigm of learning that's based on discovery and collaborative and challenging versus simply a project. You summarized it uh, this way. This is what rewiring education is all about, a series of challenging and relevant experiments that play off the pre-existing experiences where engaging and sometimes unpredictable learning process ultimately leads to a clear understanding of the results. Yeah, another, what, another good example is 
um, a school down in, in the desert south of Palm Springs, where the rumor has been that the uh, arsenic level of their water is high. So the challenge given to the middle school students there was, is your water safe to drink? And, you know, and they have to go figure it out. And what the teacher actually did is they, they grouped the students, again, in, in teams. They gave each team colored beads that represented different elements uh, in water that they had to discover. They learned that there were carcinogenic elements in water. They started asking the questions, well, who determines what level is safe and what isn't? And then they test their water for the results. Another example of challenge-based learning, rather than here's the periodic chart, memorize it. Uh, John, you had some great uh, people on your team at the time, including Karen Cater. Uh, had a great team of people. Very, very passionate about education, uh, about learning. Uh, Karen, yes, and uh, worked with Marco Torres as well. Um, in fact, I think in the obviously in the in the acknowledgments, you know, we really we really talk about uh, the team, the Apple Distinguished Educators. Uh, people that were just, including Tim Cook, who's very dedicated to, to education. And obviously Steve was as well. Um, people can learn more about challenge-based learning by going to uh, digitalpromise.org or even more specifically cbl.digitalpromise.org where uh, all these resources continue to live on. Uh, John, let's talk about coding. Uh, what's your take? There's been a bit of a rush uh, in America of late towards coding. Do you do you buy this coding for all? Um, and and if so, why? Yeah, I think I mean there's there's certainly the value, the pedagogical value of coding is that um, it's the it's the learning process itself. In fact. Um, we did project in Brazil where we worked with 10 universities, 100 students each, um, by volunteer, and started, started the, the class out as um, an app development class, which eventually turned into an entrepreneurial class because we found that the process to develop an app to solve a problem was the same process as starting a company. And it's the same process that's in challenge-based learning. So from the perspective of the process, I think it's important to learn it. Uh, it can be learned in, in, in other ways than, than coding and design, uh, et cetera. But that's the real value. Uh, the second thing, of course, is, you know, Internet 1.0 connected people. Internet 2.0 is, is going to connect things. So there are going to be a lot of jobs out there for, for programmers. And I think it's also important for the people that work around the programmers and marketing and, 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 and other areas uh, understand programming enough to be able to communicate efficiently with programmers. So I'm, I'm for it. Um, there's a school in Mexico called Varman down in Morelia that, uh, that's teaching it in second and third grade. Um, I've personally donated iPads to three schools in Ghana, where we now have middle school girls sitting on dirt floors, coding in Swift and flying drones. So it's it's not rocket science; it's just new. Chapter twelve deals with teaching, and uh, and obviously, 
you've described uh, a, a big difference between traditional education and uh, the the powerful learning experiences that we've been talking about. What's the new role of the teacher? Yeah, actually, uh, the example that I use in chapter 12, and unfortunately I couldn't put the uh, the graphics in, but again, they are on my website, is I looked at a class, fifth grade class in Chicago, Illinois, and noticed that one student was reading at the eighth grade level, one student was reading at the first grade level, and there were actually six different reading levels. If you think about the amount of time that it would take a teacher to find the appropriate learning activity for all six of those levels, it's actually more than 40 hours in a week. So my, my gut tells me that we've been asking our teachers really to perform a miracle. And what I'm hoping is that technology will, will solve that problem. Rather than being a speed bump to the teachers, it will actually allow the teacher to know where each student is individually in their class and help deliver the appropriate learning activity. We uh, did run some tests with eSparks uh, and iPads and found that students, after look, in looking at the Northwest Educational Assessment Test, only 29% of the students were, quote, college prep. But after one semester, of looking at the results and delivering that student an app that helped them overcome their gap, the test scores went to 68%. So I'm hoping that technology will bring on, you know, personalized learning or a term that I used quite often, given my background at a genomics company, targeted pedagogy. I appreciate the description in here of teaching as uh, helping students recognize their natural talents and moving from being a conveyor of information to a facilitator of learning. Yes. And, you know, and it's, and I remember my son, gosh, in 2001, uh, came home and said, dad, I need to do a science project. And I said, yes, I know you're in biology and you need to learn scientific method. What are you interested in? He says, well, I want to know what's causing the, the, the frogs to be born with three legs. And I said, well, you realize, of course, as your teacher doesn't know the answer to that, so they're going to need to take the journey with you. You're not going to find a textbook in the library. What are you going to do? And he goes, well, I'm going to go to the Internet, and I'm going to do some research. And I said, okay, well, come back and tell me what you find. And he came back and said, well, there's three premises. One is ozone layer depletion and ultraviolet light zapping the frogs. There's pesticides in agriculture land washing into a pond, causing the deformity of the frogs. And there's uh, a professor in upstate New York who found a parasite in the hind legs of of the frog. And I said, what are you going to do? And he goes, I'm going to email the professor in upstate New York. I want to find out where I can get a, a hold of these parasites and extract the DNA and compare it with the known protein in limb generation. And his results showed that 98% that the that the DNA of the of the parasite was 98% homologous to the known protein, and he said, "Well, this is the this is the equivalent of a terrorist going to the cockpit of a plane, removing the pilot, and taking a plane in a new direction." So, uh, in that case, the learning was symbiotic between the teacher and the student, and that's really what we're talking about in challenge-based learning. Uh, chapter 13 talks about technology, and then Chapter 14, you you squint and look into the future. So, uh, w- w- 
let's uh, spend a minute on both of those. What's your your current take on technology and how it should best be used in schools today? Yeah, well, I think uh, Dr. Putendera, his model, the SAMR model, is is probably the most appropriate, where he says technology can be used as a substitution, augmentation, modification, or redefinition. I think we have to redefine the class, and we haven't done that. Unfortunately, most technology today is bought, and the teachers are doing the same thing that they've done in the past, uh, looking up content rather than a book, but online. So technology is going to have to empower the teacher, and it's going to have to solve the problem of personalized learning, helping the the, the teacher. The one thing that we we mentioned in the in the teacher chapter, which kind of leads to the to the chapter on on the future, is we've got to we've got to elevate our teachers from that of a union worker to professionals with ongoing professional development. You know, there's states like Florida that have not paid have not invested at all in any professional development, unlike accountants or lawyers or other professionals. So when you when you start to look at the technologies that are that are coming and that are rapidly coming, like artificial intelligence, uh, you know, uh, uh, Internet 2.0, uh, you know, all those that are actually listed in the book, the Internet of Things, uh, you know, mo- mobile technology, adaptive learning, artificial intelligence, uh, all of that. The teachers are going to have to be not necessarily experts, but certainly aware of the impact that they're going to have on the learning process. And then in the last chapter, we simply, it's, it's a call to action to parents and teachers using Gandhi's quote, uh, be the change. So the goal was to start a, a conversation. We've started a second book called Education Rewired, which will be examples of all over the world of schools that are, that are moving towards that redefinition rather than using technology as a substitution. Uh, let's do a quick lightning round on new technology, and uh, you tell me if you're excited about it or if it's uh, overhyped. How about intelligent assistance? Uh, well, <laughs> we're certainly seeing that now, aren't we? I mean, between we Siri are, and... We, we, we're all using them at home, but I don't see many classrooms using them, so what are you excited about seeing intelligent assistance in the class? You know, if you, you age me because it takes me back to the um, to the video that Apple did many, many, many years ago on intelligent assistance. Uh, no, I don't see it used in class. I don't. In fact, most of the things that that are listed yeah. are not are not being used in class. Uh, but you are bullish on its use uh, for individual students, uh, uh, probably at home. Well, I think it'll eventually, you know, be integrated into into the classes. Um, it's just that, like, you know, look, it's like CBL. Okay, CBL is is probably used all over the world. Uh, you know, the revolution has started. But it's just not equally distributed. Uh, we haven't scaled things. And are are you uh, more excited about uh, AR or VR in learning? Uh I think uh, I've seen uh, there's a school in Mexico called Varman that has developed a challenge-based curriculum from age three through ninth grade with over 2,000 uh, augmented reality learning lessons. So I'm pretty excited about that. 
um, iPads or MacBooks? Are are you a, a touchscreen advocate or a keyboard advocate? <laughs> um, I'm probably the touchscreen advocate. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and I think they're 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 coming together. They're growing together. They finally are. It's interesting. I haven't touched my iPad in uh, two years. I'm a keyboard guy because I'm I I just write every day all day. Um, it is nice to see touch and keyboard coming together in a, a number of different formats. Yeah, I actually um, use the voice recognition the most. I've uh, and that's gotten I've, much much better in the last uh, twelve to eighteen months. Yeah, and I mean, I've got twenty one songs in iTunes. I've got some websites up on called Eden Inspirations. Uh, all of my blogs, if you will our entries in the podcasts are all recorded first. That's great. Are you bullish uh, about blockchain? You know, that's a new one. I've, I've, I've just gone on a, as an advisor in a company called Tat Tattoo, which is a, an a, uh, Italian filmmaker who started the company uh, and actually pays people to watch the library of films uh, in, 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 in in you know coins right crypto coins. crypto right yeah so it was it was announced at cons and of course it Hollywood is you know is taking a look at it because it flips the model of Hollywood where we pay to watch the films and in this case he's paying you to watch the films so um, the jury's still out I'm yep. uh, I took the job as an advisor to learn it it does seem uh, that conceptually that. The distributed ledgers uh, will benefit challenge-based learning. If you really believe in anywhere, anytime learning, uh, the ability to uh, to have a, a mobile modular record of learning mm. that a number of people can write to seems um, b- beneficial and complementary to the idea of CBL. Yeah, the the whole area. Uh, you know, we 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 ad- we addressed the problem of a new assessment. Uh, because what we assess now is short-term memory in the book, but we haven't solved it yet. So there's research at Boston College going on, uh, and that's an area that I'm very interested in is, is how, do we, how do we assess creativity? How do we truly assess the opportunity, the potential that a student has? Because removing them from the classroom and throwing them into a one-hour or a three-hour test is only testing the short-term memory. You, you it's even, not really testing potential. You even end that chapter on holograms. So you're you're more bullish on holograms than I am. Well, you know, I, I, here's the, here's the irony of that. Okay, my son, who was given an Apple II at age four by Steve Jobs as a way to recruit his dad to the company, uh, rode that mental bicycle to state history fairs to a degree at University of Pennsylvania in engineering and a minor in design and his own column in the Daily Pen. So he could he could program, he could uh, design, and he could write. You know, when I went to school, they told me I was either left brain or right brain. I had to choose. Well, in eighth grade, he wanted to do his project on holograms. He's 44 right now. Okay, And so I was able to get him into the MIT multimedia lab, and he could talk to some graduate students who were working on holograms. And so I find it kind of ironic that I'm listing holograms as a technology for the future when my son, 
about 30 years ago right. did his eighth grade, eighth grade project on holograms. So we've we've talked about technology, but I think we'd both agree that teachers are more important than ever. Uh, absolutely, uh, and you know, I'm really I'm really looking at the teacher as, as more as a mentor. Right. We, we, I formed a nonprofit organization called BeyondSchool.com, where I hope to put a lot of challenge-based learning resources up uh, for parents, for homeschooling, for uh, what I call micro schools, uh, small classes of size twelve with a mentor at different ages in the classroom. So we're, I'm going to continue. I'm dedicating the rest of my life uh, to education and learning. Uh, I, I have to confess, I've got 16 grandkids. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm involved. I only have one and it's fantastic. So I, <laughs> I can appreciate that. Um, it, it, we we uh, love reading the book and, and appreciate your contribution, uh, both as, a, as an author and a thought leader, uh, an, an Apple executive. So uh, get the book, Rewiring Education, How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. Uh, John Couch, thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. It's been my pleasure. And remember, be the change. Let's make sure that people know where to find you. So uh, beyondschool.com was one. What about the charts in the book? Uh, that's that's uh, rewiringeducation.com. All right. Thanks, John. A big thanks to John for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. For more on design thinking, listen to our episode called What's Up With All the Design-Focused Schools. We've got it linked in the show notes and on our blog. And for more on all things innovations and learning, check out the blog at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Caroline and Jessica signing off.